0: On Easter Sunday, that's April 13th, 1873, a mob of white supremacists made up of Klansmen, Confederate veterans, and members of the White Man's League surrounded the courthouse in the small town of Colfax, Louisiana. They were attempting to overturn the results of the 1872 elections, which had seen the establishment of a state and local government consisting largely of radical Republicans who supported reconstruction policies aimed at giving franchise to the formerly enslaved. The inside of the courthouse was defended by a large number of local militia, all of whom were black. After the mob set the courthouse on fire, the men inside attempted to surrender. What happened next is the most extreme recorded account of Reconstruction-era racial violence. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 109, The Colfax Massacre. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you enjoy this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. Unfortunately for the next two weeks, there will not be any new episodes. I'm in the process of moving, and I need a little time to settle into my apartment. Now, with that out of the way, let's get into the show. So, to really get the full story here, we have to start at the end of the Civil War. In 1865, the defeated Confederate states are, unsurprisingly, a hotbed of white supremacy. The Ku Klux Klan was founded in Tennessee that same year, and quickly became a powerful terrorist network stretching across the South. Though we commonly consider the Reconstruction era to have began immediately after the war's end, it wasn't until March 1867 that Congress passed the Reconstruction Acts, which set the requirements for the Confederate States to be readmitted into the Union. One of these requirements was the ratification of what are called the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. The 13th Amendment, outlawing slavery except in cases of prison labor, had already been ratified by the Union states in December 1865, and the 15th Amendment wouldn't be ratified until February 1870, but the former Confederate states still had to ratify the 14th Amendment, which granted citizenship to the formerly enslaved, and supposedly granted all people both the right to vote and equal protection under the law. As you might be able to guess, there was quite a difference between that promise and reality. White supremacist paramilitary groups, in concert with bureaucrats, did whatever they could to purge black people from the voter rolls, including intimidation, lynchings, poll taxes, literacy tests, ballot rejection, demanding proof that the voter was of age, as former slaves had no birth certificates. Even with such an incredible amount of violence and voter intimidation, Ulysses S. Grant won the presidential election of 1868, largely thanks to the efforts of 700,000 Black Southern voters. It didn't hurt that the Reconstruction Act, along with a number of newly formed state constitutions, barred former Confederates from voting or holding office. One of Grant's overall goals, and something he excelled at, was to crush the KKK. As the result of this drive, after the ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870, which forbade racial discrimination at the polls, Grant signed the Enforcement Acts, which were three pieces of legislation passed between 1870 and 1871, that not only forbade the use of terror, discrimination, and violence to prevent Black people from voting, but also gave the federal government the right to intervene when states refused to uphold the protections laid out in the Reconstruction Amendments. This combination of newly enfranchised Black voters, the Reconstruction Acts, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the Enforcement Acts, new state laws banning the Klan, pro-Reconstruction Northern politicians, and laws banning former Confederates from participation in state or federal government, seemed like it had a significant chance to drastically and permanently change the face of Southern politics. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Reconstruction was intentionally sabotaged. States chose simply to not enforce laws. In one of the most egregious cases, President Grant was compelled to send federal troops into South Carolina in 1870 to break the hold of the KKK and prosecute its leaders. White Northerners, however, were apathetic to the plight of black Southerners, making Grant's use of federal troops so unpopular that he was ultimately forced to abandon the strategy in 1873. Now, it's probably time that I talk about the Louisiana gubernatorial election of 1872. The first post-Reconstruction governor of Louisiana was Henry Warmouth, a Republican who held office from 1868 to 1872. In what was then a surprising move, Warmouth broke with the radical republicans and endorsed the fusion coalition of anti-reconstruction republicans and democrats, which went on to nominate former Confederate commander John McEnery for the governor's seat. Opposing him was Louisiana senator and republican William Pitt Kellogg. Ballots were counted by a pro-McEnery state board that had been appointed by Warmouth, resulting in both parties claiming victory filling positions and swearing themselves in. Warmouth was impeached by the state legislature for stealing the election for McHenry, who proceeded to run an insurgency throughout 1873 and 1874, culminating in his invasion of New Orleans on September 14, 1874, In what's now known as the Battle of Liberty Place, McHenry's forces, made up of Confederate veterans, clansmen, and members of the White League, successfully held the Louisiana State House, City Armory, and all of downtown New Orleans for three days before being repelled by federal troops. Kellogg's victory in the race was certified, and he served as governor of Louisiana until 1877. Nothing happened to John McHenry and he died peacefully in 1891. So now that we know the degree of violence that is stemming from this election, it's time we take a look at Colfax. The town of Colfax, Louisiana, is a small, out-of-the-way place. Its current population is just over 1,500. The 1870 census had it at 40. Founded in 1869 and named after the vice president under Ulysses S. Grant, Shiler Colfax, the town is the parish seat of Grant Parish, which was established after the Civil War to help black people get more representation in state government. For those of you who aren't familiar with the parish system, it's Louisiana's equivalent to a county, a vestige of its colonial history where the land was demarcated up by church membership. On January 2nd, 1873, two members of the Democrat fusion ticket, Christopher Columbus Nash and Alphonse Casabat, who McEnry had commissioned as sheriff and judge respectively, swore themselves into office and began to hold the courthouse. Two weeks later, William Pitt Kellogg commissioned Daniel Wesley Shaw and Robert Register for those same positions. In the middle of the night, Kellogg's Republicans took over the courthouse, ejected the Democrats, and swore their oaths of office. The majority black citizens of Grant Parish then dug in and fortified the area around the courthouse, afraid that the Democrats would attempt to retake it by force. For the next three weeks, small skirmishes erupted in the vicinity of the town, inflicting little damage to either force. These small battles served to bring about a ceasefire negotiation, which deteriorated after a white supremacist shot and killed a black bystander. The white forces, led by Christopher Nash, Alphonse Cazabat, and Jim Hadnot, spread rumors that the black citizens of Colfax were preparing to ruthlessly massacre all whites in the area, a line which served to rile up the former Confederates and active Klansmen, swelling the ranks of the insurgents. On April 13, 1873, Nash, Cazabat, and Hadnot led an armed group of 300 men and one cannon to assault the courthouse. After their initial orders to disperse failed, they gave 30 minutes for the women and children to leave the building, after which they began to pepper it with gunfire in a siege that lasted hours but inflicted only a small amount of casualties. When the mob revealed their cannon, a group of 60 men fled the courthouse and ran into the woods. They were all hunted down and murdered. After the mob lit the courthouse on fire, the defenders inside desperately attempted to surrender. Nash ordered them to come out and put down their weapons. Yet during the surrender, Jim Hadnot, mob leader, was accidentally shot by friendly fire. What unfolded next was a massacre. The white men slaughtered every black person in sight. They sought out and butchered those who were hiding in the courthouse and cut down those who attempted to flee, dumping their bodies into the Red River. Fifty men survived and were taken prisoner. That night, in a fit of drunken revelry, the white supremacists murdered each of their captives, shooting them in the back of the head. Only one man, Levi Nelson, survived. Governor Kellogg sent the state militia to arrest the men, and President Grant sent the army to capture them. By the time they arrived, they had already gone. Eventually, 97 of the men were found and indicted, Nine of them were tried for a single murder. One was acquitted, and the others got a mistrial. In a second case, three men were found guilty of murder and conspiracy to violate the 14th Amendment. Judge Joseph Philo Bradley, who would later serve on the Supreme Court, overturned the decision, claiming that there was not sufficient evidence of a racial motivation. The state of Louisiana refused to prosecute anyone involved, and, unsurprisingly, not a single one of the mass murderers who killed at Colfax faced any consequences for their actions. The response to the Colfax massacre would go on to embolden extremist groups across the country, and as the century wound to a close, the ranks of the KKK and the White League would swell to ever greater numbers. The Colfax Massacre directly led to the 1875 Supreme Court case United States v. Cruikshank, which reduced the scope of the 14th Amendment to a toothless window dressing by ruling that the amendment's protections applied only to the actions of states and not individuals, meaning that the federal government would not prosecute acts of violence and suppression committed by groups not directly linked to state government. If individuals faced injustices, the decision ruled, they must take it up with their state. The Crookshank decision left Black Southerners at the mercy of increasingly oppressive and tyrannical state governments. And as constitutional scholar Leonard Levy put it in 1987, it quote, paralyzed the federal government's attempt to protect black citizens by punishing violators of their civil rights, and in effect, shaped the Constitution to the advantage of the Ku Klux Klan. The Colfax Massacre, along with much of the violence during Reconstruction, has largely been hidden from both local and national history. Today, if you visit Colfax, Louisiana, in the cemetery, you can find an obelisk, erected in June 1920, memorializing the three white men who died perpetrating the attack. It reads, Erected to the memory of the heroes, Stephen Decatur Parrish, James West Hadnot, Sidney Harris, who fell in the Colfax Riot, fighting for white supremacy. Thanks for tuning in this week. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.